start doing it. You know, if you want to buy apartments, start driving around to apartments, look at apartments, underwrite apartments. If you don't even, don't even know what you're looking at, just start looking at it and figure out if that would be a good deal or a bad deal and find out why. I think that's the biggest thing is you look at hundreds of deals without buying one, but the biggest thing is being able to differentiate a, a deal that's bad versus a deal that's good. And I think that can only really come with experience. The more deals you look at, just start doing everything you can to get that part of the ball rolling. Welcome to the Prosperity Through Multifamily Real Estate Investing Podcast, brought to you by Blue Oak Capital. If you are looking to take your real estate investing to the next level and learn how you can achieve your financial success by investing in multifamily real estate, then this show is for you. Our mission is to help you improve your education and learn proven strategies from industry leaders to help you master multifamily investing. Now here's your hosts, Cody Laughlin, John Beatty, and Brian Alfaro. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another installment of the Prosperity Through Multifamily Real Estate Investing Podcast. I am your host, Real Estate Cody, and with me, as always, is the coffee connoisseur himself, Mr. Brian Alfaro. Good to see you again, buddy. Cody, always a pleasure to enjoy the seat next to you on the podcast. So looking forward to today's guests and uh, talking real estate. Yeah, right now it's the virtual seat, but we're talking about this for the show, right? It's going to be cool here in the next, hopefully near future where we have an actual podcast studio. Yeah, we got some big things for the podcast plan. So one day it's going to, it's going to be awesome. We won't have to necessarily be in uh, virtual rooms. We'll be sitting next to each other. We're going to make it happen. That's right. I don't know if you can stand me that much though. Can you? (laughs) I'm going to make you this coffee if you're sitting next to me. All right. Fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> All right, man. We've got another great guest with us today. Tell us who that is. All right. Today we have Tori Sheffer joining us. And as owner of Sheffer Capital, Tori is responsible for all aspects of real estate acquisition and management. This includes underwriting, structuring equity, raising capital, and asset management. His work involves managing the transaction process from inception to execution, as well as continuous asset management through the life of the asset. Tori has been in the real estate industry for six years as a broker and principal investor in 100 plus transactions, totaling over $70 million. He's got a lot of ownership deals. I'm looking forward to definitely talking about that. Tori is also an investor in Real Estate Lab, which is a real estate software company focused on analysis and data related to multifamily investing. And Tori is also a partner in a 24-7 gym in Delano, Minnesota. Prior to real estate, Tori owned and operated Superior Recreation Services, a company building commercial playgrounds throughout the Michigan and Ohio area. Tori, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Yeah, man, excited to have you here. And uh, I know we got connected a while back to a mutual friend. And so excited to have you here on the show. And for those that may not know you, go ahead and tell us a little bit more about your background and how you found your way into commercial real estate. Yeah, so I uh, grew up in Michigan, Metro Detroit, like half hour, 20 minutes north of Ann Arbor. I'm the third out of nine kids, so big family. And then my dad worked at Ford for, for like 20 years and then around 10 to 12 years ago, I was 15 or so. He left Ford and started his own company as a basically a commercial park and playground developer. So they do the big projects on schools and cities and everything for splash parks, playgrounds, everything. So that was kind of a influential moment, I would say, because I watched him kind of build that company as I was middle teenage years. What do you call it? Where you're like heavily influenced, right? By what you're seeing. So that was kind of like what drove me to entrepreneurship and kind of always wanted to work in for myself. And then I went after college. And while I was in college, I started trying to figure out what I wanted to do. And then I started a business 
and hired my friends and we would build a lot of those parks and playgrounds, a lot of the smaller ones. Some of these mega jobs require, you know, major equipment. So we would do the small ones. We would do, you know, your little uh, swing sets and things like that. So we did that in the summers, but I, I kind of always knew that that wasn't going to be what I wanted to do full time forever. And I had a pretty heavy interest in the finance world and being in Michigan, I looked at being a real estate agent as kind of the closest and easiest path to that. So I went and got my real estate license. And then while I was a real estate agent, I started to have exposure, obviously, to a lot of single family investors. And then I started to see or learn about the benefits of going multifamily and decided that was going to be the path that I wanted to go down. Very nice, man. Very nice. And, and I want to go back here. You said you're third of nine kids. Yeah. Like real estate's got to be a walk in the park compared to, to being raised in a household with nine kids. I got to imagine. Yeah. I mean, it's busy, but it's like my, my dad's the oldest of 11. My mom's the second youngest of 13. So it's like, oh wow, kind of growing up, that was, you know, obviously all I knew. A lot of my friends, my wife is from a big family as well. So, you know, all my friends have big families and that was just kind of what I knew. So it seemed very normal to me. But then obviously at school, everyone's like, how do you have that many kids in your family? But that was what was normal to me. So your Christmases um, and Thanksgivings must be uh... Oh, I think it's very large venues. <laughs> no, that yeah, it's, a, it's an absolute blast. I mean, looking back and, and talking to people with who are you know only childs and things like that, they're they're wildly jealous. So it, it puts it into perspective how fortunate I was to just have a, a massive family. Yeah, that's that's very awesome. Good. That's whew, man, that's great. Yeah. <laughs> so, so you you know you found your way into entrepreneurship, you know, through watching your dad. Uh, I think that's really inspirational, and I think kudos to your dad for kind of I guess paving that path for you. Playground construction company. That's that's pretty interesting. Uh, obviously, a integral part of a lot of our apartment communities involves playgrounds. So, talk to us a little bit more, I guess, about you know that first introduction into commercial real estate. What was that first deal? I know your first one was a pretty big deal, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. So the first one was massive. I mean, I guess in in my world, I think kind of still still now it would be massive. But yeah, it was 232 units. Is around 16 million. So what I what I did with that is I kind of started trying to find a deal in 2017 while I was working as a real estate agent. In 2019, I switched all my marketing from selling houses to trying to find apartments to buy. So I'd send out mailers for houses to sell. So I just changed my letter and sent it out to apartment owners. So it hit on a, a 56 unit and the broker called us. So it was a, a broker that was a family friend of the owner. So it wasn't on the market, but he he emailed me and he said, Hey, we have 11 other properties also. Do you want those too? And I, you know, I was just like, yeah, absolutely. Let's do it. So I had a, a buddy of mine that I had first reached out to back in 2017 and we had asked him like, what are you looking for a deal? And all this stuff, you know, I peppered him with questions. And then once I got this, I, I called him and I was like, Hey, I have this deal. Like, you should do it. I, I didn't have the ability to do it. So I called him and basically gave the deal to him. And you know, I had a, a piece of it along the way. So it worked out really well. You know, I think most people, when they get started, right, they naturally gravitate to a smaller property, you know, smaller multifamily, smaller units, because it's easier to wrap your head around, or maybe it's like a, oh, I know I can have this much bandwidth or whatnot. But, you know, coming out of the gate, 230 units, that's a big deal. $16 million. It's, you know, that's no small feat. So what kind of gave you that confidence to start there? Like, how did you know that? Yeah, I'm going to go, I'm going to be able to take this down just right out of the gate. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess I didn't, I didn't know that I could have done that or that, it, you know, and, and not like I really did a whole lot until after I got the deal and kind of passed it off, but it was really just kind of connecting the right people to the right people. And it worked out, but yeah, I mean, I had, I really had no expectations. I was just 
knew that that was a process that I was going to go after is find a deal. And that was where I could add the most value to someone else at the time. So, you know, I, I figured as far as my entry point into multifamily was going to find a deal. So I was looking for a deal. It just happened to be a, a big one. And then it worked out. Cody, I want to highlight what he's saying here, because this is something that I know we're preaching to people that ask us how to get started, where to start. You know, do I start with a five unit, a 10 unit, a hundred unit, whatever, it doesn't matter. It's all about your team, right? And figuring out where you can add value and the amount of units doesn't necessarily matter. It's just a number, right? Whether it's a $5 million deal or 10 or 20 or 30 or whatever, it's all about who can I talk to, to solve this problem? And the problem is, is I have a big deal and I can't close it myself. So I need to find somebody to partner with, right? So it's just about having that confidence and having that mindset. And then also ultimately having the network of people. Tori, sounds like you knew somebody or at least were able to find somebody that was looking exactly for that type of deal. And that, that was their buy box. That was the size they were looking for. And your value add to them was you brought a deal to the table. And because of that, you were able to take advantage, uh, you know, a piece of the pie and a piece of the upside. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was it. the guy that I brought it to was the first guy that I had reached out to about it. He was, he's younger than I am, but he had already done a couple deals. And so I had reached out to him in 2017 and said, Hey, you know, what are you looking for a deal or, you know, how do you do what you do kind of deal? And so I picked his brain and then he built a big Excel model. So I bought that from him. I learned how to do the model as best as I could at the time. And then, so I did all the early underwriting on it and did the first LOI, but, but yeah, it was definitely just kind of shoot and figure it out later, you know, as we go. But I, I knew that they had, him and his partners had bought other deals of that size. So I knew that it was a possibility. Sure. If he would have said no, I, I probably would have just started pounding the pavement and find someone else. There you go. I like that hustle. And, and Brian, we, we talk about this often where you are your own limitation. If you want to scale to whatever level, you just got to go find the people that are going to help you get there. You know, you got to build your business to where you want to go, not where you are today. And Tori, it sounds like that's what you did, right? You went and found people that gave you that confidence and ability to take down it sounds like it doesn't even matter what size the deal would have been. You would have found a way to make it happen, but you just, you know, you found that way because of the people and the relationships that you had, which we talk about all the time. It's a relationship driven business. And so if you want to get to a certain scale, just go find the people that will help you do it. Right. Yeah. And then the, I mean, the whole part about like, go, go find the people. It's one of those things where you're starting out you're like, well, well, who, you know, what do I say to them? And it's very easy and people are much more willing to work with people starting out than probably most people probably think about, you know, if you look at someone and it's like, oh, he's got millions of dollars of real estate and blah, blah, blah. It's really just kind of a, a false barrier between the guy starting out and the guy that's 10 years in, you know, and a lot of times the guy that's 10 years in is happy to help the guy that's just starting out because he was at that same point at one point anyway. And if someone says no, and they're not going to help you out, or they're not going to tell you anything, go find the next guy. There's, you know, there's a hundred million of them out there that are doing the same thing. It's, it's not a new idea or a new business that we're in. Obviously it's a rinse and repeat and it, it works. So don't reinvent the wheel, but figure out people who you want to work with along the way. You know, Tori, there's a whole lot of wisdom just shared in that last few minutes there that you just shared, because, uh, you know, I think the mistake that people make when they first get started is they don't know where to start. So they don't, you know, they hold themselves back, but it's like, look, you first got to go tell the world what it is you're doing. You got to let the world know who you are and what it is that you're doing. But yeah, you know, you've got to put yourself out there. You have to tell the world what it is you're doing, right? But you also, you got to be able to be confident enough to tell people what your value proposition is, right? You have to figure out who you are first in order for you to tell that. But like you said, man, 
you got to keep putting yourself out there. You have to be as forward facing and front facing in all the networking events and social media and, and all these different forums so that the world can know who you are and you can attract people that want to work with you and you can find those people that align with you and such. And so I think that's the one we hear this often, right, Brian, is people like they get started and they're, and it's a slow start, which is okay. But it's like, you know, they're not going out to the networking events. They're not showing up to the virtual events. They're not engaging with as many people as you can. And that's what's really kind of slowing them down from really growing. Yeah. A million people say they want to invest in real estate. It sounds attractive. Everybody knows the power of not only building wealth, but keeping your wealth in real estate. But a lot of people, like you said, are not like Tori here. They're not out there taking action. And that's really what differentiates the people that are successful from the people that are not successful is the people that are successful are just the ones that are willing to work harder for longer and do more uh, behind the scenes. We had a great guest, Brandon, and he said, it's, it's all about the work you do when nobody's watching. It's what's going on behind the curtain because you've got this deal history. I'm looking at over here, Tori, you've done a lot of deals, right? And like you woke up one day and you just like, oh, I've just done like, you know, 20 deals or something like that, right? So it, yeah. you're doing a tremendous amount of work in the background that nobody gets to see. And all we see is your successes, but uh, it's all about putting yourself out there, doing the work behind the scenes and, and good things tend to happen. Yeah. And the thing is, is I started looking for deals in 2017. It took three years before one closed. I was working as a real estate agent at the time. And so I, you know, I worked for myself and had control, you know, in theory, control of your schedule. But that's part of the reason why I didn't want to be a real estate agent anymore. Because they say you work for yourself, you end up working for 50 people and you're working after hours on their schedules and weekends and all this stuff. But yeah, I, I was able to take some time to put into finding a deal, but it still took three years. It's not like it was something that happened in 45 minutes. And that's the other great point too, is there's a lot of patience that is required in this business because Brian, you said it eloquently, right? It doesn't happen overnight, but I mean, there's not a lot of people that are, are willing to wait three years to get that first deal done. But what you don't understand is the amount of work and effort that goes into those three years is what really helps accelerate that trajectory after you get that first one done, you know, and if you're not willing to stick it out and put your head down and show up every day and just be patient, you're going to be very frustrated for sure. Absolutely. And the, the other thing is it snowballs quickly. So like I, I did that first deal and then I bought another 24 unit on my own and then a 33 unit. And then I've done a ton of deals now. I, it's, I start to lose track of it, but now the deals like in my bio, right? It says 70 million sold and invested. In, and now I think it's really closer to a hundred, but it snowballed in, incredibly quickly, but it's all just a matter of taking the action to, to get started. And, and the other thing is I didn't have any of my own money into that first deal either. You know, I didn't put up earnest money. I didn't do any of that. And you know, I gave away the lion's share of the deal because of that, but I was able to get my foot in the door and that kind of just launched me into it. I think that's super important to highlight too, Cody, right? A lot of people that are getting into real estate, they have a hard time swallowing that they might not make any money on the first few deals, right? You might not get much out of it. You're, what you're really getting is experience and you're getting a track record Obviously, ideally, you want to make some money, but it's not going to be... It's not like Tori did one deal and then he retired and lives in the Bahamas now, right? But it sort of set the ball in motion to where he now had a deal that was done. He started to have a little bit of a track record, at least kickstarted it. And he probably got a little bit of money on it on the upside uh, you know, when, when they bought that deal. So now you can start to let that thing snowball. And now you're able to put your own capital into the deals over time. But those first few deals, you know, you really got to understand that you're really doing it to put the snowball in motion so that you can be successful down the road. 
Yeah, yeah. I, mean, I definitely didn't didn't make no money. I made I think more like two years of real estate agent money on that on that first deal, but uh, it was huge. But you know, if your first deal is like a sixteen unit or so, a, a deal that I bought this year is thirty three units. It was the guy's first deal, and and he got it off a of mailer as well. And then he called me and was like, "Hey, what should I do?" So it kind of had come full circle already, but. You know, he made money off that deal. I think he made like 15 grand and then he owned 6% of it. So, you know, it worked out really well for him too. And that got his foot in the door. And now he's in other deals. I just closed another deal that he brought to me and he just wanted a fee on that one. So I gave him a fee. And so he's, he's made decent money just by bringing two deals for like, I think it's 40 units or 50 units total and like $3 million worth of deals. So it's obviously doesn't need to be mega, but it, you can still get in your foot in the door that way. That's the thing is you got to be willing to be creative and be resourceful. Just because you don't have the money to get started should not be your barrier to holding you back. As you mentioned, you know, you can go find the deals, you can go find the dollars. You like, you know, you can connect people to opportunity and and that's where you can find your way in. And, and Brian, I think to your point, we talk about this all the time, right? Would you rather have a large or whole piece of a small pie, or would you rather have a small slice of the watermelon? You know, and there's something to be said about being a smaller part of a larger project because it is just bigger economies of scale, right? And there's opportunity everywhere. But I think there's this business is all, especially when you're starting, it's your track record and credibility. Well, you have to have opportunities. You have to have deals done in order to build that. So you've got to be willing to take it on the chin a little bit. And you got to be willing to, to eat some of that up at the front for sure. So you can continue to grow. And Tori, like you said, you know, finding ways to, to get in opportunities versus just having to feel like you have to take that burden on yourself. Yeah, and I think it's it's makes it more fun too doing it with other people. So you have someone to to talk about it with, to get excited about it, and and the other thing is it accelerates your your learning curve. You know, if you're able to partner up with someone that's already made the mistakes and knows what to look for and all of this stuff, so it kind of just knocks that aspect of the learning curve out of the way. So I think that's a big factor of what has kind of propelled me into doing so many more deals since that first one is because I, I was able to see all that. There's so much that I learned. So it wouldn't have made any sense. And I couldn't have done. I wrote the first offer. It was over, a little over $13 million. I had 50 grand in the bank and we had 200,000 earnest money on. I had no clue where that was going to come from. If this guy was going to actually come in the deal with me, you know, I thought it was a good deal, but I didn't know it was a good deal. Turns out it was an absolute home run and it's turned out extremely well. But I didn't know that at the time. You know, I, I had nothing to base it off. It sounds like you had like nothing to lose. Like you were coming from an aspect of like, you know, I'm going to go figure it out. And what, what, are the, what are the options do I have? Yeah. I mean, worst case, the seller decides to sell it to someone else or he says, no, I'm not going to take your offer. I don't think you can buy it. Or there really was nothing to lose. So it was full steam ahead and see what we can do with it. You know, Brian, it's, it's people like that, like you, Tori, like coming from that perspective, those are the people that really you have to watch out for in a good way. Like you, you are the guys that are getting the successes and the stories, right? Because when you attack your business as what else do you have to lose? Failure is not an option. I'm going to go get it. I'll figure it out. Like Brian, you said, this, this is the difference between those who are just sitting on the sideline, waiting for opportunity and those who are sitting up, leading the pack and getting deals done. And I commend you for that, man. And I think it's, even as you find success, I think sticking with that mentality of, what else do you have to lose? Like just going for it, right? Pushing full course press and going for it. Yeah, definitely. It's, I mean, it doesn't make sense not to do it. So if that's what you want to do, then quit sitting around and go do it. Hey guys, it's your host, Cody. And I wanted to take a few seconds to ask you a very important question. Do you really know how to evaluate a passive investment opportunity when it has been presented to you? 
We all know passively investing is a great way to invest in multifamily real estate, but do you really understand the intricacies of passively investing in these private placement offerings? Sure, there's a ton of education on how to buy apartments, but not enough education on how to effectively evaluate a private placement offering when considering a passive investment opportunity. With the ever-growing number of syndicators entering into the multifamily space, it is important that you have a fundamental understanding on how to protect your interests and most importantly, your capital when investing in these private placement offerings. If you wanna learn how to passively invest like the pros and avoid the pitfalls of many novice investors, then check out our free investor guide titled How Savvy Investors Evaluate Multifamily Deals on our website at www.blueoakinvest.com forward slash evaluate to learn how you can confidently evaluate your next passive investment offering. Now back to the show. That's awesome, man. Well, all right, Tori. So you so you you got the snowball going, you had the, you know, the acceleration, you had opportunities coming. Did you find that your deals now are coming more for people bringing you opportunities or how are you sourcing your acquisitions now? Yeah, most of it is people bringing me opportunities now. So it's kind of kind of come full circle. And so the last couple of deals, so I, I, I've had three closings in the last three weeks for 98 units. So the first one was a 52 unit. And that one came from a cold call from a couple other guys at that, their first deal. And so they, they brought me and the partners actually that I bought my first deal with, or that kind of led that first deal. So we ended up selling 184 of them right away. We did a double closing. So we sold 184 of them right away. And then we kept 48. And then we just sold 28 of them in October. And we did a 1031 into this 52 unit. And that's those guys' first deal who got that on a cold call. And then the next deal was in South Carolina. It's a couple of guys that own a 14 unit on their own. They never raised money and syndicated the deal. So they wanted to kind of see how that process went. So they got this 30 unit in Columbia, South Carolina. It turned out to be a good deal. And we had talked a few times, but not done anything together. And then they popped on this one and sent it to me like, Hey, what do you think? And I was like, this, it's a great deal. So we bought that. We just closed on that two weeks ago. And then just last week was the guy who brought me another deal. He introduced me to a broker who introduced me to a broker who knew the seller. And it was off market and I stole the place. You know, not completely stole the place, but we paid nine seventy five. I could sell it today for a million too. And it's a home run deal. But yeah, most of it's come from other people now bringing deals to me. So I'm under contract not to sell on an eight unit in Michigan. And that's same thing. A guy got it on cold call and brought it to me. And it's kind of crazy that it's come full circle and come to that point. But in Obviously, wildly grateful that that people reach out to me, and you know, I happen to be likable enough or whatever that they want to work with me. So it's it's a ton of fun. It's the hair. You got great hair, Tori. Yeah, yeah it must be. Oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, man, that's great, and that's really cool. And, and I wanted to ask your perspective right now. I mean, you mentioned that a lot of these opportunities are coming off market. What's your position right now while we're at this market cycle, looking at opportunities that are on market versus off market? Do you, is that any consideration or? You know, what's your, what's your vantage point on that? It's a mixture. So um, like the deal in Columbia was 30 units. It was on market. We had a buyer broker on that one. And then there was a seller broker as well, but they were friends. So something there helped us win the deal. We bought it for 336. It appraised for 355, I think, somewhere in that range. And there was a couple other buyers that were a little higher, but we were able to get it. So you know, that deal, the, the rents are a thousand bucks. They should be 14. They're three bed, two and a half bath townhomes. It's a great deal, but it's just kind of in that that area where it's too big for the guy that's just doing it on his own. It's too small for most companies that are looking to syndicate deals. So 
I've been getting a ton of deal flow in that 20 to 60 unit or 20 to 80 unit deal size just because of that. You know, a lot of syndication companies or companies that have been doing it for a while can only focus on 100 unit deals because the economics just aren't there on a you know $3 million deal. And then the $3 million deal is too big for the guy that just wants to go buy one, you know, multifamily building and have that kind of be a side income. So, you know, there's definitely good deals on the market. I made an offer yesterday. I'm kind of going back and forth with them on a deal in North Carolina that's almost identical to the one we just bought in South Carolina. So there's definitely good deals on market. Yeah, off market, you're going to get a better deal most times, but definitely look at the market and see what's there. Curiosity. So, you, you know, your first deal was a 232 unit, and then you've done a bunch of these other deals since that all kind of range in sizes. So you got eight units, you got 30 units, you're 50 units. Kind of sounds like you, you know, you have a, a wide criteria for your, for your buy box. What's the approach? Like, what's the strategy? And as far as the type of opportunities you're sourcing, you know, I think most of us have a specific focus of, yeah, this is going to be our criteria. We're only going to buy at this unit counter, whatever. But it sounds like for you, it might be more of just the opportunity versus the characteristic itself. Can you talk about that a little bit more? Yeah, it's definitely opportunity. But so the first deal is 232 units total, but it was a portfolio. So the biggest one there was a 56 unit. And then there was a 48, there was two 20s, there was a couple 10s and an eight. So we kept two of the 10s and an eight, and we ran those as one property. They were a block apart from each other. So that was, we ran that as a 28 unit. And then the 20, 20 unit that we also kept was in just all in one building. There was a 12 in there. Yeah. And then the 48 and the 56, which we ended up selling was right away. But they're all kind of in that same deal size. It just happened to be 12 of them right in one, one shot. But with the first one being your portfolio, you know, you kind of got a taste of that economies of scale. But it sounds like for you, like I said, you're just these small opportunities, as I think a lot of us know, right? I mean, they can be cash gals for sure. They're, they're good properties. They're just a little bit more labor intensive. So what qualifies for you to be a good opportunity regardless of the size? Yeah. So like the, so the ones I'll, I'll use, the ones that we kept out of that original portfolio. So a 20 unit in one building and then two tens and an eight, which we ran as the 28 unit. So the 28 unit, we've now come full cycle on that and we, we sold it. So we were all into that one for a little right around 2.4 million. We had renovated 10 of the 28 and we sold it for 3.7 a year and a day later from when we closed on it originally. We were able to do a 1031 into the 52 unit with no more money out of pocket, which was incredible. And then the 20 unit that we still own, we have it on the market right now, but we're all into that one a bit under 2 million with renovation. So we, we bought it for around a million three. We had a $500,000 renovation budget. We're going to spend 25 grand a door. It's in a great location. So we're going to really just blow it out. So we've renovated 12 of the 20 now, and we have offers just shy of 4 million. So, you know, between those two properties, 48 units alone, there's almost $4 million of profit, you know, which is kind of crazy, you know, but we bought those at a, at a really great price. But a lot of times on a, on a bigger deal, if you're looking at a hundred units, you know, and you can get four and a half million dollars of profit in a year you're making it like a bandit, obviously. So there's definitely money to be made in the smaller deals. And that's just kind of what, what I've gravitated towards. But yeah, I mean, it's, it definitely, in my mind, makes sense to go and get those smaller deals because there's a huge chunk of money to be made, but it's less people looking at them. As I say, I would, I would argue there's probably not as much competition as, as what you're seeing in maybe the larger multifamily space where you're one of 30 offers on every every deal. And you can ask us how we know, but, <laughs> but 
But is the strategy when you're when you know when you're taking down these smaller multifamily units, is the strategy to kind of control one market? Like, so are you trying to go for density in one particular location, or are you, are you just kind of spread out? Because it sounds like you're in multiple different markets. Yeah, I'm in multiple markets. So, like, we have the 30 units in South Carolina. We have 18 units in Texas. We're doing a condo conversion. The chat one's more of a flip than the others. But yeah, I mean, it's really just it's multiple markets, but it's. A, Primarily, most everything is in Metro Detroit, which is obviously kind of investing in my backyard, right? That's where I grew up and I know it well. So I'm not trying to control any single market. It's just that happens to be where I've gotten a lot of deal flow. And now, you know, brokers are starting to reach out to me and kind of give me looks at things before it comes to market. So you know, I've kind of built up, you know, not, not like an insane name, but people know that if I'm going to make an offer on it, generally it'll close pretty easily. I, I haven't backed out of an LOI or a purchase agreement. So you know, that's definitely helped. But yeah, there's no control the market plan. It's just buy a good deal if it comes up. I like that. That's cool, man. That's great. And are you, do you have team members, partners that you're relying on in these markets? Because with you being in Michigan, you know, you're in Carolinas, Texas. I mean, that's, that's kind of spread out. You know, how are you managing your portfolio? Yeah. So I'm actually, I live in Arizona now, actually, as well. I just moved out here in, uh, in June. So I have a property manager. They obviously handle all the property management stuff, the day-to-day stuff. And then on the, the joint venture deals, the work is split up a little bit between the partners. But then the deals that I have on my own without any other general partners in there with me is I do all the asset management. It's just me at this point. I definitely am at a stage where I should hire someone or partner with someone. I just haven't put my head down to kind of figure out what I want that to look like if I were to bring someone on the team full-time and make it a real thing, which I definitely want to. I just haven't taken the time to do it. Sounds like a good problem to have, huh, Brian? <laughs> Absolutely. You're getting to the point now. I mean, like you said, it took three years for you to get your first deal. But look at you now, right? You've got a good problem where you've got too many assets to, to manage yourself and you've got a lot of work to do. So now you're looking to grow your team, which is also a great part about real estate, right? Is uh, let's bring some other people along for the ride. One of the things I love about your story is how you started from nothing and somebody helped you get to where you're at. And now you're returning the favor, right? People are bringing you deals and either you're paying them some sort of assignment fee or you're bringing them into the deal. And it's a lot of these guys' first deals. So I think that's phenomenal. And now that you are at a point where you've got assets under management, where you need some help with asset management, either you bring on a partner or you hire somebody, you're going to continue to scale, right? And that's the beautiful thing about real estate is uh, so many people can benefit from real estate. It's not it's not like a single family house, right? Where you buy one house, it's all your money and you've got a couple hundred dollars of cash flow. So you just got to hoard it yourself. A lot of people can really take advantage of the benefits of commercial real estate. And it looks like uh, there's some people that are in the very near future going to get to uh, go along on the journey with you. Yeah. I mean, just, even just from the, the closings we just had, I think two of them were, were part of the guys who sourced the actual deal. That was their first deal or that was their first deal that they syndicated on. So and then the one I'm under contract right now, this, this will be his first deal. So to now have the knowledge and the ability to to do all this and sign on the debt and do everything, put my own money in the deal is is awesome. It's come around a lot quicker than I would have expected, but at the same time, I I told myself like I, this is kind of the path I want to go down. So I've always been kind of lucky and had the belief that I can do whatever I want. You know, I wouldn't say it's completely surprising, but I wouldn't have expected it to kind of come this quickly. Definitely respect that, Tori, and we're happy to see that success. But uh, if we can, man, I want to spend a few minutes talking about the JV structures. And Brian, we we get asked a lot about JV structures, and we have not participated in any ourselves yet. 
let's talk a little bit about that if you wouldn't mind. You know, how are you putting these JV structures together? What is the involvement from the JV partners? And a little bit about that if you wouldn't mind. Yeah. So it's kind of mixing up the different aspects of the deal, right? So there's number one, you got to find the deal. Number two, you got to do all the underwriting and all the due diligence and and all the contract to close stuff. You have to have debt. So you got to have someone who can sign on the debt for the property. Usually that's going to be net worth equal to or greater than the loan amount. And then you got to have someone who can do asset management long-term. So if you take those factors of it, I actually have a spreadsheet that someone else gave to me, but it kind of shows breaks down on the general partnership because we're raising money from investors to, to fund the bulk of these deals. It breaks down like what each portion is worth. So on a deal that I, I just recently did, the guys that found the deal, they found it. And then they did a lot of the original underwriting, all the original contract negotiations, and then brought it to me. And then I did all the contract to close. And then I was the one that was like the primary guarantor on the loan. And then we had someone else that we brought in to raise money. So we raised a million one for that deal. So we had someone else come in and he, that's all he did. So he just focused on raising the money. So he raised 750 grand. So for that deal with the general partnership, we did a 7% preferred return and then a 70-30 equity split with the investors. And then once we return all their capital, it goes to a 50-50 equity split and the pref obviously falls off. So the equity raise on that one was worth 30% of the general partnership. So if you look at general partnership is worth 30% of the total deal, that equity raise is worth 10% of the total deal. And then we just broke it up prorated. So each one of the partners, we had three partners on that one, was the guys that found it. And then me and then the other guy that was raising the money. So he raised 750 grand and he got that prorated portion of that um, you know, 30% of the general partnership that we set aside for the capital raise. And then for something like just finding the deal, a lot of times if someone just says, Hey, I have a deal, I don't have any money, I don't know what to do, you know, you do it, but here's a deal. You know, that will generally be worth 10% of the general partnership. So, you know, if we end up with 30% or a 70-30 split like that, then it's 3% of the total deal. It's not a lot, but it gets you in the door. And then once you have the net worth, if you have net worth, like this path deal, you know, the loan was $3 million. So you got to have someone who has the ability to sign on that loan. And obviously the property is the first level of defense against the loan, but then you got to have still a person to backing it up in this world. There's a credit union loan, so it's full recourse. So you got to have someone with the ability to sign on that. Okay. So going back to the JV structure, Tori, um, you know, it, it's, I think it's common knowledge that every participating member of the joint venture partnership has to have involvement in the deal, right? Active involvement. So is it as easy as, and, and I use easy lightly, but is it as simple as having a, a loan guarantor, having an asset manager and an equity partner in the deal? Or is there some other involvement that you have in the day-to-day management of the deal versus just signing on the loan? Yes. I mean, you would have someone, if they were going to just purely sign on the loan, they could just purely sign on their loan, but then they'd review you know, quarterly statements or monthly statements with you as well, and just kind of make sure that everything's going along smoothly. Obviously, once you buy most deals, as far as a day-to-day aspect, you know, you put your, like all of my deals are value-add. So we kind of put our value-add strategy up front with the property management company. It's like, hey, here's our plan. Here's what we're going to do. And then they help us execute on that. And we just kind of oversee them along the way. So, you know, there, there will be days and usually it's like once a week where something comes up at each property or a couple of times a week. But there are days when there's nothing to do. Or if it's full, right? If, you're, if your property is full, what are you going to do? You know, people are living there and they go to sleep at night, wake up in the morning and go to work. They pay their rent. 
it's physically nothing to do. So it's not like you got to, you know, commit some major time to it, but you can just find the deal and bring the deal, get a little piece of the general partnership. And then you just review all the stuff and kind of just do the, basically like a board meeting. And then the same thing for, if you're going to be a KP and sign on the loan, then you sign on the loan and kind of just handle that aspect of it. So there are definitely a ton of different ways to get involved. Yeah. Interesting. Got it. So from your perspective, which partnership structure would you prefer? Do you like the syndication model or would you prefer just moving forward with joint ventures and why? I would say, I mean, joint ventures are probably more fun. It's less stressful, right? So like in Texas, we have a joint venture deal. There's four of us involved. It's a condo conversion, 18 units or 16 apartments plus a duplex. We needed a million too. So there are three of us kind of doing a lot of the more day-to-day work. And then one guy put up a million dollars and then the three of us put up a combined 200 grand. So we're all going to knock on wood, do really well on it. But as far as the day-to-day stuff, we, we split it all up. Like, okay, one guy's in charge of making sure that these things get sold. One guy's in charge of making sure they get renovated properly. One guy's in charge of working with the legal team to make sure that the condo docs are properly prepared and we can actually sell them. So there's definitely a little less stress on that side because you don't have so many people depending on you for the money. But in a deal like that, it's a flip. And then we also have a joint venture on airplane hangars in Texas. So in Salado, Texas, there's a new airport going in. It just got paved, I think, yesterday. So three of us bought, we bought three lots on the new airport and we're going to build hangars and do hangar storage. So we put, I think, 60 grand each, and then we're going to use that equity in the land to build the hangars. And it's just the three of us. And there's really no stress on it because, you know, we can build it when we want to, or we can, you know, wait till other people build it and see kind of what takes shape. But joint venture is definitely, I would say the the preferred method. Brian, every single time we talk to guys like Tori, we always hear something new. Like I've never would have ever thought about airport hangers or plane hangers. That's uh, that's interesting. There's so many different strategies to be successful in real estate, right? And I I love that Tori's sort of looking, just looking where the opportunity lies, right? If it's an airport hangers, then airport hangers. Let's make it happen, right? Yeah, it's like, I mean, the the airport hangers. So one of my friends who, I guess now he's a a good friend of mine, but he's the guy that I brought into that first deal. He lives down in Texas. And another one of my buddies from Indiana was moving down to Texas for the month of May last year. And the goal was, okay, let's find a deal we can buy in Texas in May. And you know, while he's living there and, and I was going to go down there for a week and we were going to find, find a deal to buy. So I got down there, I think on like May 5th or 7th. And they're like, Hey, we have this 18 unit. We're going to buy this. And then there's these hangers. Are you in? It's like, yes, sounds fun. Let's do it. So it's not like we did like some deep analysis on hangers outside of my buddy is working on getting his pilot's license. And he knew it's really hard to find hangar space right now in Texas. So that was really kind of the the driver behind that. And then obviously we kind of all see what's going on with single family houses in Texas. So if we can do a condo conversion where, you know, in a good location, it should do really well. I like the creativity there, Tori. And I, and I think that's important, especially right now in this market cycle, I think the ability to be creative is where you find those opportunities. And so uh, that's, that's really cool, man. That, we have to keep us posted on that one. Be interested to see how that one kind of plays out. Yeah. Yeah. It will be, it'll, it'll be fun to, fun to watch, I guess, fun to do too. So. Yeah. Well, Tori, man, we love your story and just, you know, love the the growth that you've had and, and really the perseverance and just like you said, just ready for our aim and going out there attacking your business and just not giving up and finding the opportunity. So, you know, I think it resonates really well with our listeners. And hopefully there's many on the show that are listening today that really just take these nuggets and really just go out there and just make things happen. Just go find a way 
just make things happen. And like you said, just get that snowball going and then finding those opportunities. So uh, it's been fun, man. Really appreciate you sharing your story. And before we go, we got a couple more questions for you. Then we're going to wrap up. Yeah. Awesome, man. Awesome. Well, look, one thing we'd like to find out from all of our guests is, you know, what do you like to do for your continued education to further your own investing? So I listen to a ton of books. I mean, I, I like books and podcasts. That was kind of where I started learning. I listened to the Rod Cleef podcast from episode one and listened to those every single... I was driving a ton as a real estate agent. So I had a ton of time in the car to listen. So I do a ton of books and podcasts. And then if I see a deal that happened that looks interesting, I reach out to whoever did it and kind of see if I can find out some information on how they did it and the different structures of it. Awesome. Looking back at your trajectory, what was the one moment of time or one event that changed the course of your business? Yeah. I mean, it was definitely the first deal, right? The 232 units. And we did a, a double closing wholesale on... We sold 184 of them right away for a million for profit. So that was kind of eye-opening to be like, wow, I can you know generate a significant amount of money by these actions that I'm taking. So, and then that we've sold now the 28, we made a million three and did a 1031 into a 52. So it's really validating and builds a ton of confidence to be able to see that what you're doing is working. But definitely it was the first deal because I made made enough money on that. I could not work as a real estate agent anymore. Right. So I made two years of real estate agent money on that deal. And I was like, all right, I'm going full-time multifamily. I don't want to sell houses anymore. That's got to be a good feeling, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's incredible, obviously. Awesome. Well, Tori, what advice would you give to the listeners to help them grow their businesses? I mean, I would say start doing it. You know, if you want to buy apartments, start driving around to apartments, look at apartments, underwrite apartments. If you don't even don't even know what you're looking at, just start looking at it and figure out if that would be a good deal or a bad deal and find out why. I think that's the biggest thing is you look at hundreds of deals without buying one. But the biggest thing is being able to differentiate a, a deal that's bad versus a deal that's good. And I think that can only really come with experience. The more deals you look at, just start doing everything you can to get that part of the ball rolling. Great advice, man. Great advice. I'll tell the listeners how they can learn more about you and get connected with you. Yeah. So I'm on all, you know, all the social media networks, obviously. Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn. Probably I'm most active on Twitter and Instagram, which is at Tori Sheffer and Twitter is at Tori J. Sheffer. So those would be the best place to follow along and get in touch with me. Awesome. Well, Tor, we appreciate your time, man. Appreciate your story. Keep crushing it and look forward to continue to stay connected and watching your growth, man. Thanks, Tori. Yeah. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me on. Today's episode was proudly brought to you by Blue Oak Capital. To learn more about Blue Oak Capital and how you can partner with us, visit www.blueoakinvests.com. Tune in next time. 